Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Issue Zero podcast. It's on a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new insight, and to give you new information to boldly go where tons of people have gone before. I'm Fred Kennedy, and on today's show... We're breaking the standard Issue Zero format and giving you the five essential Star Trek The Next Generation episodes to help you understand who Captain Jean-Luc Picard is and why he's the most perfect sci-fi character for the world we live in today. Jean-Luc Picard. He's a timeless character. He represents everything I've ever felt was good and right and just. Just listen to this. It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. That blew my mind. It's so true. And whenever things blow up in my face or don't go the way I want in life, I try to remind myself of it. Picard is like my personal Jiminy Cricket. And when they announced that he'd be coming back with his own series, I was excited. And hesitant. The thing is, when things get rebooted, those in charge tend to forget what it is about the character that made them so special. There's a near universal urge to recreate them for an entirely new audience. And that can work if your changes are stemming from the flaws in the initial character. But with Picard, that would have been an awful idea. He's like an old textbook you find in the back of a school library from 50 years ago that is shockingly relevant to everything going on in the world today. Let's be honest. The vast majority of the things you love today will probably age poorly. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how the world works. But Captain Jean-Luc Picard manages to avoid that. I can say that with certainty because for the past few days I've been re-watching a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation. I was doing so to prepare myself to binge the new Picard series. Then I realized that some people may not be very familiar with Picard and that might keep them from tuning in. They might assume he's part of a bygone era of bros in space, embarking on kick-ass adventures, hooking up with busty green space chicks. I couldn't let that happen. So here we are. Now, I don't want you to think that this episode is about the best Next Generation episodes, nor is it even about my favorites. In fact, my all-time favorite episode has no business being on this list. If you're wondering, it's the Season 7 episode, Genesis, where the crew all begins to devolve into primitive creatures. Definitely worth watching after you check out the episodes we're about to discuss, no matter how completely ridiculous it may be. Also, these aren't really in any particular order. This is just the order I watched them in. Although, I will say this. The last one we talk about, I will argue, is the most important and relevant episode of any series ever broadcast. And even though it aired in 1991, the issues it deals with are in every way just as relevant in the world today as they were the year it was made. If you're completely unfamiliar with the crew of the Enterprise, I should explain. In the original Star Trek series, the Enterprise was commanded by Captain Kirk, or William Shatner. Uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard commands the Starship Enterprise too. It... See, Kirk's ship was NCC-1701, and the Enterprise in The Next Generation is NCC-1701D because it's the fifth ship to be called Enterprise. You get it. So, without further ado, let's begin. Episode number one, Tapestry, written by Ronald D. Moore, directed by Les Landau. It's season six, episode 15 which was broadcast February 15th, 1993. Now, this episode starts with a panic aboard the Enterprise. In fact, it opens in the sick bay, and the ship's chief medical officer, Beverly Crusher, is preparing for wounded to be transported on board the ship. But not just any wounded, the captain himself. <gasps> oh, no! Picard is transported in. 
we learn he was attempting to mediate a diplomatic mission on a nearby planet's surface and was attacked as he left. He lays on the operating table, but it's too late. The screen fades to white. Picard is adrift. He's in a whitewashed scene, walking towards a figure bathed in light. Light so bright, you can't tell who that figure is until they reach out and touch his hand. (gasps) It's Q! Q! And he utters a fantastic line. Welcome to the afterlife, Jean-Luc. You're dead. Then they cut right to commercial. That's one of the things I really miss about broadcast television. The way writers would drop gonzo lines and story hooks and then cut to commercial to keep you tuned in. It really is a thing of wonder. Now, hold on. I'm uh, getting a signal from my producer saying that I really should explain who Q is. Okay. Uh, Q is an omnipotent immortal played by the fantastic John DeLancey. Uh, He's all powerful. And you know what? There's actually a fantastic description of Q on Wikipedia. Now, I read ones on a few different fan sites as well, but they don't quite capture the essence of Q in the same way. Q is a fictional character as well as the name of a race in Star Trek appearing in The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager series, as well as in related media. The most familiar Q is portrayed by John DeLancey. He is an extra-dimensional being of unknown origin who possesses immeasurable power over normal human notions of time, space, the laws of physics, and reality itself, being capable of altering them at a whim. Despite his vast knowledge and experience spanning untold eons and much to the exasperation of the objects of his obsession, he is not above practical jokes for his own personal amusement, for a Machiavellian and manipulative purpose or to prove a point. He is said to be almost omnipotent and he is continually evasive regarding his true motivations. So that's really all you need to know about Q. If you were a fan of the show and watching it, you really wondered, is Picard actually injured at all? Is he dead? Is this just another one of Q's pranks? Or is this Q giving Picard, and in turn, us, the audience, a lesson about the importance of accepting our own mistakes and flaws. Q explains that the reason Picard died was because his artificial heart gave out. (gasps) Picard has an artificial heart? Yes, he does. And we immediately see how he got that heart. There's a flashback to a young Picard fighting with some Nausicans. Think of them as like 1980s metal fans in space with mullets and tusks. Regardless, young Picard is fighting away when one of them stabs him in the back with a long knife. Picard turns back to Q, explaining how young and brash and foolish he was. Q notes that he hears regret on Picard's voice, asking if there's anything he'd like to change about his past. And shockingly, Picard says yes. And this sets the entire episode in motion. Suddenly, Picard is back in the days of his youth, days before being stabbed. He and his friends from the Academy are about to be sent out on their first assignments, ready to disperse across the galaxy. The events that led to Picard's eventual stabbing begin to unfold. His friend is playing Domjot, which is like fancy space billiards with flashing lights and sounds, when some Nausicans approach demanding a game. Yes, the same ones that did the stabbing. They beat Picard's friend, but they were cheating. And when Picard's buddy tries to get back at them, Picard intervenes saying, dude, it's not worth it. Obviously, that's me paraphrasing. And this is the part of what makes the episode so great. All of us, every single one of us has this pompous idea that if we could live our life over again, our experience and wisdom would prevent us from making mistakes. But we forget that we live in the now. And the people we are now are informed by those mistakes we made in the past. I remember the first time I saw this episode, I agreed that, yeah, getting revenge on the Nosigans won't prove anything. But you gotta show face, man. You can't let this guy play you and get away with it, even if they are giant dudes. Regardless, old Picard prevents the fight and saves his heart, and there's a flash, and suddenly Picard is back in his own time, but he's not himself. Well, 
He is, but he's not the captain of the Enterprise anymore. He's a junior science officer. This new life he's created is a shadow of the life he once led. He took no risks. Here, I'll let Riker and Troy explain. Throughout your career, you've had lofty goals, but you've never been willing to do what's necessary to attain them. Would that be your evaluation as well, Commander? I think I have to agree with the counselor. If you want to get ahead, you have to take chances. Stand out in a crowd. Get noticed. Alternate Picard, or in this case, Mikard, asks about the possibility of ever getting his own command. It's not going to happen. This is too much. Picard calls out to Q, saying he prefers to die as the man he was than live out this new dismal life. It's a telling statement about who Picard is as a character. He can admit his mistakes, admit he was wrong, and he learns that his mistakes, great and small, are part of what makes him who he is. And that's such a great takeaway about the value of human experience. If you're listening right now, you might have regrets. But your regrets, your mistakes, are part of what makes you who you are. And those moments of foolishness that we may think hampered us in the years that came afterward really are just as valuable as any of our successes. Picard is willing to die to maintain his identity. He has accepted death instead of regret. And how many of us would do the same? But he doesn't die. He wakes up on the table in sickbay with Dr. Crusher still performing scans. And we, the audience, are left to wonder if this was a trick played on Picard by Q or whether he actually did have a near-death experience. I have my own theories, but just watch it for yourself, and if you want, you can drop me an email, okay? Number two, Chain of Command, written by Frank Abitamarco, teleplay by Ronald D. Moore, directed by Robert Shearer and Les Landau. It's from season six, Episodes 10 and 11 broadcast on December 14th and 21st in 1992. You know, this one actually almost didn't make the cut. See, it's not really a great Picard character episode until the very end. It's really the very, very end of the episode that makes it so good. Now, if you haven't seen it, you know, actually, I don't need to give you a spoiler alert because this was broadcast years ago. The episode is great because it breaks Picard. And you don't even realize he was broken until the very, very end of the episode. In fact, I still have discussions with my friends about whether he was even broken at all, but I realize I'm putting the cart before the horse here, so let me explain what happens. Now, in Star Trek, there are countless alien races. Most of them are good, some of them not so good, some of them are bad, and some of them are constantly leaping back and forth between good and bad. And this episode deals with the Cardassians, not Kardashians, although part of me can't help but think how awesome it would be to have a show called Keeping Up with the Cardassians. Star Trek writers, you're welcome. Anyways, the Cardassians and the Federation have a violent history. The Cardassians were notorious oppressors, particularly of another alien race called the Bajorans, which is a central plot point in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But at this point in the Star Trek timeline, there's an uneasy peace with the Cardassians, and uneasy is putting it lightly. So in this episode... Picard is tasked with leading a covert mission on a Cardassian-occupied planet to find evidence of a biological weapon that is to be used in the violent expansion of Cardassian territory into Federation space. Now, I've never liked the plot of this episode because if you're planning a covert mission, you probably shouldn't use the captain of your flagship. You should literally use anyone with a lower profile. Literally. Anybody. Obviously, the mission fails and Picard gets captured. This leads to one of the best series of scenes in Next Generation history. Picard's interrogation at the hands of Gull Madrid, brilliantly played by British actor David Warner. Now, Picard is now a Cardassian prisoner and as such faces their wrath. He's stripped naked, chained to the floor tortured, deprived of his humanity, and Madrid even brings in his own children to watch. 
proudly stating that humans are no better than animals. Do humans have mothers and fathers? Yes. But human mothers and fathers don't love their children as we do. They're not the same as we are. Will you read to me tonight? Of course I will. And in true Picard fashion, he doesn't relent and says, When children learn to devalue others, they can devalue anyone, including their parents. It's fantastic because it's 100% true. But also, even when you've got him chained naked to the floor, he doesn't forget to call you on your bullshit. If only we were all so brave. The torture continues daily, beginning when Madrid turns on four lights behind his desk and asks Picard, How many lights do you see there? I see four lights. No. There are five. Anyone who read 1984 in school should recognize that as a tip of the hat to how many fingers am I holding up? That scene endured by Winston Smith. Madrid is one of the most insidious characters ever to appear on Star Trek because you realize that he truly believes in what he's doing. Note, you don't agree with him. You just understand his position, which is important when creating a good villain. Madrid grew up destitute, on the streets, starving, on the verge of death. But when the military rose to power, when their people began their militaristic expansion, his life dramatically improved. And not just his life, but the lives of nearly everyone he knew. He makes a case for why his regime is just, and no doubt for millions of people it is. But it's only just for certain types of people, meaning Cardassians, only Cardassians. If you're not Cardassian, well, too bad. You're going to get conquered. And the back and forth between these two, honestly, it's Madrid that brings out the best in Picard. You need to watch it. In a twisted sort of way, he even attempts to befriend Picard as a reward for the torture. You do, however, have a choice. You can live out your life in misery, held here, subject to my whims. Or you can live in comfort with good food and warm clothing, women as you desire them, allowed to pursue your studies of philosophy and history. I would enjoy debating with you. You have a keen mind. It's up to you. A life of ease, of reflection and intellectual challenge. Or this. But it's not working. Or so we're left to think. The Federation learns of Picard's fate and demands his release, but Madrid makes one last attempt to break his prisoner. He claims that the Cardassians have invaded Federation space. They were victorious, and the Enterprise was destroyed. He claims Picard is to be executed, but Madrid can save him, and this is fantastic to watch. Across the room, the doors open with two Cardassians marching in. Madrid doubles down claiming the soldiers have been sent to kill Picard. He needs to relent. He needs to submit or he will die. And Picard just stands there. And as a viewer, you're wondering what's happening. He looks genuinely confused. And when the guards grab him, he shakes, barely able to stand. But they're not guards. They're high-ranking Cardassian officials, and they're angered that Picard has been treated so terribly. He was meant to be prepped for release, and they insinuate... Madrid will be punished severely for failing to do so. And this is when Picard comes to a stop, refusing to take another step. He turns around, stares at Madrid, and with his last bit of sanity, he shouts defiantly back. It's so great to watch. It seems like Picard will never be broken. But at the end of the episode, he privately admits to Deanna Troy that he was saved just in the nick of time, that he was willing to say or do anything to make the torture stop. His mind had been broken down. He actually saw five lights. I like knowing that for two reasons. Number one, I like the admission of vulnerability. It's so easy to lie and claim nothing gets to you. It's 
It's much more heroic that you've been tested and have no shame. It's much more heroic than to admit that you've been bested and have no shame in it. I also love that in his broken state, he was still willing to lash out at his oppressor, to walk out and leave Madrid with the impression that he'd lost. He couldn't beat Picard. I realize you could argue those two points are contradictory, but... I justify it by saying Picard refuses to lie to himself. He's honest about who he is and how his experiences have impacted him, but he has no problem lying to someone who isn't worthy of the truth. Episode 3, I Borg. Written by Renee Echeveris, directed by Robert Ledman. It's season 5, episode 23, broadcast May 10th, 1992. This might seem like an interesting pick to most Star Trek fans. Uh, it's not really here because of the episode itself, but because it represents the conclusion of an arc that began two years earlier. So before I get to I, Borg, here's what leads us to it. In the series, we've previously learned that the Borg were a very adaptive, cybernetically enhanced race that consumed and assimilated species into their collective. They have a hive mind, like all the Borg are interconnected. What one knows, they all know. They are always learning and adapting. The Borg are, well, they're the coolest villain in Star Trek lore, period. We are Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Just look around, pal. You're hardly in a position to make any demands. They were first introduced in the episode Q Who, and were left with this, they're the boogeyman, you've got no chance against them, but they're coming, kind of vibe. In Best of Both Worlds, we really see what they can do, because that's when they launch their attack on the United Federation of Planets. In fact, things get extra personal when they assimilate Picard himself. They turn him into Locutus, which is Latin for the one who speaks. It becomes extra creepy as Picard serves as the Speaker of the Borg as they attempt to assimilate the entire Federation in one fell swoop. In the end, their attack is repelled with the loss of tens of thousands of Federation lives. In fact, the crew of the Enterprise recaptures Picard and deborgs him. They pull him out of the collective, and in doing so, Picard gives them insight as to how to repel the Borg attack. Now, here's where we see some amazing character development. Picard is traumatized. He, the captain of the Federation's flagship, is responsible for the most devastating attack against the Federation in its entire history. His entire identity has been ripped from his mind and poured over by the entire Borg collective. He's gutted, deflated, and it's not like he just pulls up his laces and keeps going. No, the second episode of the fourth season called Family has him visiting his family's vineyard, the same vineyard he's tending in the new series. See, it's here that he deals with his brother who's always resented him. He and his brother fight and argue, his brother jabbing him about how Jean-Luc always thought he was better than everyone and look what happened, look what he did. Picard is so devastated, he actually contemplates leaving Starfleet. But in the end, after a complete and total breakdown that sees him sitting in the mud crying, he adopts to continue with Starfleet and take to the stars once again. How great is that? The captain of a starship being so totally vulnerable and open, then rebuilding himself. So, with all that development and all that character progression, we arrive at I, Borg. It starts with the Enterprise getting a strange distress signal. When they respond, because they always do, they find Borg. There's a small Borg craft that's crashed, and all the Borg are dead except one. And the Enterprise is torn about what to do. They have a duty to preserve life, but Picard opts to bring the Borg on board the ship, not to save its life, but to study it, corrupt it, then use it as a weapon to destroy the Borg once and for all. This is where the show becomes a real morality conflict, and in turn we see how much conviction Picard actually has. Will he side with his morals, 
Or will he take revenge for what the Borg have done to him? Or is he actually saving all of Federation space from the Borg? Regardless, this Borg, separated from the Collective for the first time in its life, has no one to talk to except the crew. In particular, Jordi LaForge, the ship's chief engineer, played by the immaculate literacy advocate LeVar Burton. Jordi has been tasked with finding a way of inserting an unsolvable logic problem into the Borg's neural network, so when he re-enters the Borg Collective, this problem will be uploaded and in turn destroy the entire Borg Collective once and for all. Now, let's get pragmatic here. The Borg are bad. They've wiped out entire species and civilizations, assimilating them into their collective whether they wanted to or not. They have no mercy. They have no compassion to them. The entire universe exists simply to be consumed. So is Picard wrong for wanting to use this lone Borg to wipe out a threat? No, I don't think so. The conflict really lies in Picard's motivation. Is he acting in the interest of others or is he merely exercising his demons? The Borg robbed him of his individuality. Now, he's keeping his feelings at bay, but the past has come to bear. This Borg is on his ship. And will he destroy it once and for all? But there's something strange about this Borg. When the crew beamed him aboard, they placed him in a prison cell that cut him off from the board network. He is alone for the first time ever and explains to Jordy how alone he actually feels. There's a breakdown. Here it is quiet. There are no other voices. Other voices? On a Borg ship, we live with the thoughts of the others on our minds. Thousands of voices with us always. I think what you're saying is that you're lonely. Now, that's a wild thing to contemplate. He's never been truly alone. He's always part of a group conversation, whether he likes it or not. And now for the first time in his life, he's an individual. He has free thought. And this is a problem when Jordy openly questions Picard's orders to implant the logic problem into this Borg's mind, who is now going by a name. Hugh. Jordy explains that Hugh isn't a normal Borg, that he's becoming something different, and as such should be protected under Federation law. Picard is doubtful, but he agrees to talk with the Borg himself. And when he does, Hugh immediately recognizes Picard as Locutus. And Picard plays the role. He plays the role of Locutus again. Imagine how stressful that is for him. He demands that Hugh assist him in assimilating all the members of the crew. And the answer he gets from Hugh is surprising and confusing. I will not assist you. I. Jordy must not be assimilated. But you are Borg. No, I am Hugh. Now Picard has a tough choice. Does he turn Hugh, who is now an individual, into a living biological weapon? That will violate Starfleet regulations. Does he wipe Hugh's mind of his memories that he's accumulated since coming aboard? The idea of individuality, because that would make him a regular Borg. And technically, at that point, it would be okay to use him as a weapon but he'd still be killing someone to create that weapon. There's a real gray area here. No matter what he chooses, people are dying. Now, if I can press pause for a moment, this is why I know Picard is a better person than me. Because, see, I'd have wiped his memory, tossed the logic problem in there, sent him back, wouldn't have lost a wink of sleep about it. There'd be no concern. I don't care. The Borg are a menace, plain and simple. I believe in redemption. But I don't believe in the idea that the Borg, like all of them, can be redeemed. Not at all. But Picard has another idea. Again, this is why he's so much better than me. He believes in the idea of liberty and individual freedom so much that he cannot, in good conscience, destroy it and send an innocent on a suicide mission. 
He will instead send Hugh back with his memories and ideas of individualism back into the collective, minus the logic problem. He doesn't compromise his principles because of his own personal trauma. This is powerful stuff. And this is what makes Picard such an amazing character. He recognizes his own flaws that have driven his decision-making, addresses them, and moves forward, ensuring he corrects his behavior. Regardless of whether you think he made the proper tactical decision, that's still something to be admired. I love Picard. And we're on to episode four, All Good Things, written by Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga, directed by Winrick Colby. It's the series finale. Broadcast date, May 23rd, 1994, a day before my 15th birthday. Still have it on VHS, by the way. This is my favorite finale of any TV show ever. If I needed, I could argue it critically in the way that it ties in the principles founded in the very beginning of the series, like it calls back to the very first episode seven years earlier. It wraps up storylines for all the major characters without giving them a definitive ending. It just like sets them all on their own paths. And it gives Picard a spot front and center to save humanity's very existence. That's literally the plot of the show. Picard needs to prevent the formation of a paradoxical anomaly that grows in reverse, like it's bigger in the past than it is in the future. And the wild part is that it's him that causes it in three different timelines, no less. Now, the episode starts in a way that only Star Trek can. Worf and Troy are starting a romantic relationship, and they're about to get into a turbo lift, which is like an elevator on the starship, and Picard charges down the corridor in his pajamas, and he's muttering about needing to know the date. Why? Why? Because he's jumping around through timelines. And as a Star Trek fan, that totally makes sense. Like, think about that. You're five minutes into the episode and you're like, oh, well, clearly he's jumping around in timelines. Totally makes sense. That's Star Trek right there. Immediately, we get a good bit of insight into Picard. Like he sits down with Troy looking for reasons as to why he feels disoriented and why he feels not fully connected to the timeline. He listens to her when she speaks like he takes the advice. That's awesome. Because so often we're all in a position where we work for a boss who knows less and they refuse to listen to us. But Picard is not like that. If he asks for your opinion, he isn't doing it to you for courtesy. He actually wants your opinion. Then we zip into the future. We're suddenly in a vineyard, <gasps> the same vineyard in the new series. Picard is a bearded old man tending grapes. And Jordi LaForge who's now much older, walks up from behind and they begin to talk and zip, he's gone again. Now he's in the past on a shuttle about to board the Enterprise for the very first time. And who is piloting that shuttle? Chief of Security, Tasha Yar. And this is pretty disorienting for Picard as Tasha Yar died in like the first season. So he's in the shuttle with someone who died, someone he knows will die in just a few months. And eventually Picard returns to the present and goes to see Dr. Crusher, who diagnoses him with Eremotic Syndrome, which is a neurological disease that causes delusions and such. But is he suffering from delusions? They scan his brain, and it turns out in only a few minutes, his brain has accumulated days' worth of memories. <gasps> he is adrift in time and thus enters Q. And this is just perfect. This scene with Q calls back to the very beginning of the series because we're in the exact same setting as they were in the very beginning. Q is a judge presiding over a court in the post-apocalyptic horror that was Earth just after the end of World War III. And Picard makes a case for humanity that we deserve to exist. Picard is put to the test because are we worthy of survival if we can't stop a calamity we even created ourselves? And I just love how Picard is all business here. At no point is he trying to defend us or himself. His only focus is solving the problem. So lacking these days. So lacking. Instead of wasting time pointing fingers, he's like, let's just solve the problem first. 
But then again, Picard is off in time and he's back in the future where they know about his eremotic syndrome and they kind of pander to him, like brushing off his stories of this inter-timeline calamity as merely just part of his delusions. And again, this is a very telling character trait. He knows he's right. He believes. And he knows that if he can't convince anyone else to believe him, he and all of humanity will be destroyed. And who is it that begins to see Picard really could be telling the truth instead of just imagining everything or having a delusion? Data, who is now a professor at Oxford University. He, unlike everyone else, is actually listening to what Picard is saying. A statement about the way we treat the elderly, brushing off any wisdom they have as outdated and unreliable. Yet Data is the one who says, There's nothing to disprove what you're saying. So it's possible something is happening to you. The first thing we should do is run a complete series of neurographic scans. We can use the equipment in the biometric lab here on the campus. Jessel, ask Professor Ripper to take over my lecture for tomorrow, possibly for the rest of the week. Captain, we'll get to the bottom of this. And with that, everything begins to change. All three enterprises begin to converge on a singular location in space, where the temporal anomaly is growing in reverse. And it's in the neutral zone between Romulan and Federation space. And that in itself is cool because you see Picard in his element being diplomatic, explaining that the ship is investigating a very serious matter that will affect all life in the galaxy. And in the past, where Picard is a freshly minted captain with a rookie crew, he's forced to wrangle the crew to heal, you know, follow his orders to go to this random point in space. And of course... The way he's acting is strange. Let's not forget he's bouncing around in time here and it's putting everyone at unease. And then he breaks out one of those clutch Picard speeches. I know you have your doubts about me, about each other, about the ship. All I can say is that although we have only been together for a short time, I know that you are the finest crew in the fleet. And I would trust each of you with my life. So, I'm asking you for a leap of faith and to trust me. That's another one of his great traits that pops up throughout the series. He's got this way of making you believe in yourself, which is what good leaders should do. And as a viewer, you love the character. Now, this episode really was a last hurrah for Picard. And when you see this trip through the series itself, you're hit with the nostalgia and reminded what you love about the show at its heart. It's Picard. Like for a finale, it's like they're bringing you back through the entire series and showing you the future. And it's amazing. Now, plot wise, the only real hang up at this point is the future. Old Picard. Remember, he's got that eremotic syndrome, and no one wants to help him get to this point in space where the anomaly begins. They can't get help from Starfleet because at this point in the timeline, that sector of space is no longer in the neutral zone, and uh, it's controlled by another alien race, the Klingons, and things are not going so well between the Klingons and the Federation. But inevitably, they find passage on an unarmed medical ship piloted by Dr. Crusher and make their way to the anomaly. But it hasn't begun and the whole crew, now aged and annoyed, wrote Picard off as a crazy old man. But he knows he's right. And Q enters the scene once again and takes Picard all the way back to primordial Earth, where life at random is about to form. The special anomaly, like that time paradox thing, now encompasses most of the galaxy, and its cosmic interference is preventing life itself from beginning on Earth. Picard is given the stakes. Q has shown him everything he needs. And then we're back in the future once again with a renewed sense of purpose. Picard barges in and begins ranting and raving about paradoxes. The crew aren't listening. Except for Data. Once again, Data is listening. Let us assume for a moment that the captain has been traveling through time. Let us also assume he has initiated a tachyon pulse 
at the same coordinates in all three time periods. In that case, it is possible that the convergence of three tachyon pulses could have ruptured the subspace barrier and created an anti-time reaction. I see where you're going, Data. And because anti-time operates opposite the way normal time does, the effects would travel backwards through the space-time continuum. And now they're back on track. Arriving at the appropriate spot in space where the anomaly begins, and using information from future data, the professor, he and the three other enterprises close the anomaly and save the day. After a brief conversation with Q, who congratulates him on his accomplishment of saving humanity, Picard joins the command staff for their poker game. Now, this is a little bit of inside baseball here. Throughout the series, the officers always had this poker game going, but Picard was never there. And when he walks in, they stop playing, but he asks to join, and he delivers the final lines of the series. I should have done this a long time ago. You are always welcome. So, five-card stud, nothing wild, and the sky's the limit. That's it. That's how the show ends. And it's so perfect. He's telling you, the viewer, not to hesitate, not to delay, make time for your friends and your loved ones, because we won't have them forever. Time is precious. And that very last phrase, the sky's the limit. What a fantastic way to end things. Anything is possible. So says Picard. And now we're at our final episode, The Drumhead, written by Jerry Taylor, directed by Jonathan Frakes himself. It's from season four, episode 21, broadcast on April 29th, 1991. I know it seems weird ending this episode with anything but the finale, but this is the best and most important episode of the entire Star Trek The Next Generation run. It's prolific, it's important, and it will never not be important because it is pure idealistic Trek. I think of it as like the sci-fi version of The Crucible, which is an Arthur Miller play that used the Massachusetts witch trials as a metaphor for McCarthyism. This is an episode that begins with the interrogation of a Klingon spy who's been accused of stealing secrets from the Federation and selling them to the Romulans. They're also alleged to have committed an act of sabotage that damaged the ship's warp core. And given that the Enterprise is the Federation flagship, it's a serious matter, and a special investigator, Admiral Satie, is brought aboard the ship. Now, when you first meet this Admiral Satie, Picard has a sit-down with her, telling her how much he admired her father, who was a big deal in the Federation, always ensuring it lived up to its values of freedom and equality. You're thinking, well, this is nice, but it doesn't really last. She's brought her assistants along with her, one of whom is a Beta Zed, and Beta Zeds are empaths, and they can read emotions, and she employs her Beta Zed assistant to read people while being interrogated. Again, that's fine, but it becomes quite clear that the Admiral isn't someone who ever leaves empty-handed. Anyone who at any time who has had any dealings with this Klingon spy is a suspected accomplice. And her sights are immediately drawn to a medical assistant named Simon Tarsus. Tarsus was giving the spy medical injections because he's got some illness or something. But the spy was smuggling the stolen information off the ship by encoding it into his own DNA. And since that would require injections to succeed, Tarsus becomes suspect of the Admiral's investigation. Tarsus' life is suddenly torn upside down and wide open and Satie wants blood and nothing will satisfy her until she proves this man is guilty of something. Things get worse when Tarsus turns out to be one quarter Romulan. On his enlistment papers, out of shame, 
He wrote he was one-quarter Vulcan. I realize if you're not a Trek fan, that might sound confusing, but Vulcans and Romulans look the same, bowl cuts, pointy ears, only Romulans are fiery and volatile and, you know, enemies of the Federation and stuff, and Vulcans are logical and amiable. So, also, Vulcans are key founders of the Federation, and the Romulans have been at war off and on with the Federation, so it's obvious why this guy would lie about his background. Now, the attack on Tarsus' character does not sit well with Picard, and he calls Sati out on it. And she declares she doesn't need his help or approval for anything she does. She is the Federation. It's interesting because she doesn't actually ever break regulations. She just uses the laws to persecute instead of protect. Picard is shook. And he's frustrated. He sits down with Tarsus face to face. He wants to know who this person is. He needs to talk to him as an equal. And it's a great scene when they finally sit down. Tarsus admits his mistake, says he only lied because he was embarrassed and worried that his blood, like his heritage, would prevent him from seeing the stars and making a difference in the galaxy. At around the same time, Data and Jordi LaForge have completed their investigation of what happened to the Warp Corps. It wasn't sabotage at all. It was a stress fracture that caused the warp core to breach. The timing was just coincidental. And with confronted with these facts, Sati is dismissive. At this point, Picard realizes full well that Sati has lost her center. Tis no trial, tis a drumhead. 500 years ago, military officers would upend a drum on the battlefield. They'd sit at it and dispense summary justice. Decisions were quick, punishments severe, appeals denied. Those who came to a drumhead were doomed. When Satie interrogates Tarsus again, she claims that a compound only used in sickbay was found in the exploded remnant of the warp core. This is a flat-out lie, and Picard has had enough. Satie and her assistants were making false claims for the sole purpose of eliciting a response, and he will not allow such behavior on his ship. He intends to fight this all the way to the highest levels of Starfleet. That's so great. This is the type of boss we all want. One who might not even know us, but will fall on the sword to defend us because it's the right thing to do. And it looks like he is falling on the sword because... Picard finds himself brought to the stand. And that's where we see what happens when someone twists the law into a weapon. She highlights incidents where Picard was responsible for things going wrong, but she only ever tells half the truth. She leaves out the context of each situation to paint the captain as a buffoon, as a traitor to Starfleet. And it's really interesting because we see this behavior all the time. In an era where editorials passes news and passion passes for accuracy, we're knee-deep all the time in factual cherry-picking. But Picard waits for his moment and he delivers this speech from the stand. With the first link, the chain is forged. The first speech censured, the first thought forbidden, the first freedom denied chains us all irrevocably. Those words were uttered by Judge Aaron Satie as wisdom and warning. The first time any man's freedom is trodden on, we're all damaged. I fear that day... How dare you! That was a speech written by Satie's father. Picard uses his words against her to send her into a rage. She loses control and tips her hand, showing that she's more a zealot than a keeper of Federation philosophy. And to, to be honest, it felt a little campy in the way that she crumbled, because that's really not how things work in the real world. But it's so great to see someone like Picard just rise above it all, and I think that's what's really great about this episode. Normally, protagonists will fight fire with fire, and we're expected to just be like, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. 
Instead, Picard doesn't fight her on her level. He just exposes her as a witch hunter. And no matter what happened or what the evidence was, she would ensure someone was guilty. The episode ends with another fantastic speech, one that is always my go-to. This is why Picard is a better captain than Kirk argument. Villains who twirl their moustaches are easy to spot. Those who clothe themselves in good deeds are well camouflaged. I think after yesterday, people will not be so ready to trust her. Maybe. But she or someone like her will always be with us, waiting for the right climate in which to flourish, spreading fear in the name of righteousness. Vigilance, Mr. Wolf. That is the price we have to continually pay. It's so true. It's so true and timely. Picard warns of the dangers of being blind to our own biases and versions of morality. That we shouldn't be so quick to destroy someone's life along with any who dare to defend them when we feel they've done wrong. He's advocating critical thought and reasoning, not feelings. It's not about what you feel is true, but what the evidence shows is true. I wonder if this episode would even get made today. Like what would happen when so much of our conversations about issues are less about facts and more about individual feelings? If you're out in the world and you feel attacked by information, take the feelings out of it. Look at what the information is. Compare it to multiple legitimate sources, then react. Otherwise, you'll be disappointing Picard. Now, like we discussed in the beginning, these aren't the best Next Generation episodes. They're just the ones that I think show who Captain Picard is the best. There were some others that very nearly made the cut because they're cool Picard-centric episodes, but they just didn't hit it on the head for me. So today, for Issue Zero Recommends, I'm just going to suggest a few other Star Trek The Next Generation episodes that almost appeared in today's episode. The Inner Light, Darmok, Allegiance, Family, Menage a Troy, and The Battle. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Issue Zero so you never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. I want to hear from you. What do you want to hear? I'm always looking for ideas. Like, I pester my producer for ideas all the time. Uh, you can reach out to me if you want on Twitter at fearless underscore Fred on Facebook and Instagram. You can email me issue zero at curiouscast.ca. The show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy and Dila Velasquez, our producer and sound design. Final production is by Rob Johnson. See you next time for more issue zero. Mm-hmm.